Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. Every birthday wish would be, please, God, let my parents get their papers and also that pink Barbie car that you get to drive. <laughs> this is Death, Sex, and Money. My best friend. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. Sorry we don't have enough time for romance, my dear. And need to talk about more. It's a question of money. Money's a good reason. I'm Anna Sale. If I would call and they wouldn't answer, my heart would drop. Growing up, Diane Guerrero knew that her parents were in the U.S. illegally. I'd run home and I'd be like, Mom! Mom! She'd be, like, in the bathroom scrubbing the toilet. She's like, what is it? And I'm like, oh. She's like, what's wrong? And I, sometimes I would start crying. I'm like, I thought you were gone. I thought you were gone. It was just over three years ago when Diane got her big break in acting. She landed the role of Maritza Ramos, one of the young Latina inmates in the hit series Orange is the New Black. If you want more pizza, vote for Maritza. I like pizza. Everyone likes pizza. It's American as shit. A year later, when she was 28, Diane was cast in Jane the Virgin as Lena, Jane's know-it-all best friend. A month after Jane the Virgin premiered, Diane went public in another way. She wrote an op-ed in the L.A. Times about her family. How old were you when you realized your parents weren't citizens and didn't have papers? I was young. They were just always so scared, and I didn't understand why. You know, I had to be in on it. You know, you know, little kids, they, they hear conversations, adult conversations, and maybe they'll, they'll start talking to their friends about it and maybe not, not knowing or not understanding the implications. And I think my parents, or especially my father, wanted to cover, you know, his bases with me and let me know what was going on from an early age. You know, so I, so I knew. Diane grew up in Boston. She was born in the U.S. Her parents had entered the country on short-term visas from Colombia. When their visas expired, they didn't leave. I don't think that they stayed with the intention of being undocumented for a very long time. I feel like they just thought um, that they were going to find a way. When did you realize that you were different, that you had papers? Whenever I would get upset, I feel like my mother, you know, would say all these beautiful things about me and she would say, you have everything. You're, you're beautiful. You're smart. You know, you're a good person. 
you're a citizen of this country. You have every opportunity. You know, she would say, you're a citizen. You, you, can, you can do anything you want. And so I felt, you know, a lot of guilt through that. And I didn't understand if I was a citizen, why weren't my parents? I always knew that if something went down, obviously, like, my parents would go and and I guess I would be, you know, I, I would be able to stay. But that made me incredibly sad, you know, to know that I had something that my parents didn't. And I felt kind of like I, I didn't belong in either or. Diane's mother and father worked a series of low-wage jobs, factory work, washing dishes, cleaning hotels, to stay under the radar. They were they would worry about asking, you know, even for directions. And I would just remember the fear that my parents had and just not letting anyone in and kind of keeping it in the circle. But when Diane was in sixth grade, her mother reached out to a lawyer about getting a green card. She was picked up by immigration a few months later. She was deported, then made her way back into the U.S., and then was deported again. Diane's father took care of her while her mom was in Colombia. He would prepare me for two things, death and, and, um, and in case he, he was uh, taken uh, by immigration. Um, and he just, he just told me, okay, have, have your moment of your, you know, your freak out and be upset and then get up and be a big girl, and, you know, you knew that this was a possibility, and now's not a time to to crumble and to, you know, lose yourself. This is a time where you need to be astute, eyes open, ears open, and ready to go. When Diane was 13, her mom returned from Colombia again. Things were finally looking up. Diane was accepted to the Boston Arts Academy, a prestigious high school for the visual and performing arts. And in the spring of her freshman year, her dad even won $10,000 from a Powerball ticket. We, we just thought, I mean, we thought our luck was turning around. I had been doing well in school. I was excited about school, and my dad had given me $50. Um, I wanted a pair of, of new sneakers. And I went with my friend, and I picked them out. I was really excited. And then um, I took the train, and I... I, I called home because I don't know why. I was like literally two blocks from home, but I called home and and they wouldn't pick up the phone. And it was weird because at that time I knew that um, that they would be home. So I ran home just praying to God, please, 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 God, please, God, like let them be there. Please let them be there. Not today. I walk in and and I open the door and it's dark and... The kitchen light is on, and I I walk in, and there's my mother's dinner started, but she wasn't there. So I called out, Mom, Mom, Dad, Dad, Mom. Nothing. I, and I looked everywhere. I mean, I feel like I even looked in inside the fridge. And then I went out, and the neighbor um, told me that they had been taken away, and I was just I just dropped to my knees. I mean, it was just like the worst thing. Like, that could have happened to me. How old were you? I was 14. So you were alone in your home. Mm-hmm. Did anyone from the government get in contact with you to make sure you were safe? No, they didn't. It was kind of like I didn't really exist. 
who knows how different things would have been if someone would have checked up, but nobody did. No one did. When Diane realized her parents were gone, she did what her dad had told her to do. She called her best friend, whose family knew about her parents' undocumented status. I felt like I couldn't stop crying, you know. Then I'd, like, slap myself and say, no, I have to stop. And, you know, her mom would just tell me to to just be. It was always this constant, like, letting go and then, like, knowing that I had to be strong because, you know, that this wasn't the worst to come. You knew that? Yeah, I knew that. And what what does that mean? What do you mean What you knew it wasn't the worst to come? Well, just everything would change, you know. My my family unit essentially died that day, so I didn't know I didn't know what was coming, you know. I still talked to my folks, but it just everything changed. You know, I had to kind of um be a big girl and kind of live my life accordingly, kind of like day to day, but I, for all that I was going through in high school, like, you would never know that I was going through such sadness, you know. I would I would hide it very well because, well, first I knew I had to keep on going. But second, I didn't want to, you know, let anyone into what was happening. I didn't want anyone to take me away or send me away or think poorly about my parents. You know, it was shameful. Did you ever sleep again in that apartment where your family had lived together? No. No, I just, I went... I went back to, like, pick up my stuff and help, you know, try to pack my parents' luggage. And there was no point in keeping anything. I just kind of grabbed whatever meant the most to me. And I just sent my parents what meant the most to them. And the pictures, we had lots of pictures. And we, I think we made a box and sent them to my aunt. But, you know, everything was just, we just left it there. You know, there was no need to keep it. Was there ever a moment where you thought, these are my parents, I've got to go where they're going? Oh, absolutely. And I'll, and I'll be honest with you, I felt, once I did make the decision to stay, I often wondered if I had made the right decision, if I should have gone back. And, you know, I remember, like, arguing with my folks, like, why did you let me do that? Why didn't you make me go with you? And my parents just told me I, we didn't think it was fair to, to, to do that to you, to make you go. But I think the answer is you never know what's better. In a way, I just felt so, you know, stuck to my ways. I, I wanted to carry out what they had started. I, I wanted to really show, I don't know who I wanted to show, but I wanted to show someone that this wasn't a mistake and that my parents' hard work didn't, wasn't in vain, and I was going to do something to make them proud. Um, it's a lot of pressure. It's but it's a lot of pressure. Exactly. It's like okay, now choose. You know, and it's like one, one way and and the other, and then you have to and one or the other is going to determine the rest of your life. So I don't know. This is the path I chose, and um, I've had to pay a lot for it. There was a huge disconnect between my folks and I, and and I I think about that every day. Throughout the rest of high school, Diane stayed with family friends. Her dad would send the money from Columbia, but it wasn't much. Did it feel like you had a home when you were in high school? No, I don't think I ever felt that way because a home is not just the physical place. I felt my home was with my my mom and dad. And if I didn't have that, then I was just kind of like buying my time until I can create my own home. Nothing was my own. And that was clear every day, I think. 
Did you do anything rebellious during your teenage years, or did you feel afraid that you were going to lose the place where you were staying? No, 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 no. I was by the book. I, I was, yeah, I was afraid of losing my place. I was afraid of disappointing the people who had helped me. Um, I was afraid of disappointing my folks. How could I do something to shame them even further? Oh, no. I was very clear about that, that I, that I was going to be a good guest and that they weren't going to um, regret their decision in taking me in. Um, of course, that proved disastrous later, you know, when I finally was on my own and, and dealing with all these, like, repressed feelings. Coming up, Diane talks about what happened after high school when her struggles with alcohol, depression, and money began. I'm working on it every day, you know. Um, currently looking for a new therapist. Um, for anybody out there looking for a uh, 29-year-old um, who's experienced losing her family and addiction issues, call me. After we released our latest episode with your stories about near-death experiences, we heard from more of you. Aaron from Queens wrote in about being in a house fire 20 years ago. Your podcast did not make me feel good, but it made me feel connected, she wrote. I feel sad for those people and for myself sometimes, but we are the survivors, the get-out-alivers, warriors that overcame through luck and hardship. And we received this voice memo from Amy. In April 1988, when she was 12 years old, she witnessed her best friend's mom get shot and killed during an armed robbery. Almost every year happens that as April rolls around, just a dark cloud comes over me and I feel um, emotionally drained and almost a depression comes about. And it's almost like my body remembers the trauma before my mind does. And several people wrote in in response to Bex's story about his suicide attempt after getting sober and getting sexual reassignment surgery. Jenna wrote, My stepsister, who was also trans, tragically took her own life last September on her birthday. She was mostly through her transition, and I still just couldn't understand why she decided to take her own life. I feel a bit more settled now after hearing Bex's story. Thank you for all of your responses. You can always email us or send us a voice memo at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. On the next episode, Benji Unger and Chaim Levin. The two friends grew up in Orthodox Jewish households only a few miles away from each other in Brooklyn. But they didn't meet until they both signed up for gay conversion therapy. I wasn't out, but I wasn't in. I was, like, in this really depressing middle ground. I had no fr- I lost. Literally, I literally lost all my friends. It's called No um, Man's Land. We called it that. No Man's Land. You're kind of in between. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure— 
how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. While Diane Guerrero was privately grappling with her parents' deportation, she found joy in performing. She studied theater and music in high school. But when it came time to go to college, she decided to take a safer route. I wanted to go to, like, a conservatory, and I think that was always on, on my mind. But I didn't think I could do it because what am I, you know, I going to do going to an art school or something like that? Like, that's, that's crazy. I'm not, A, I'm not talented enough, and B, it's like, you know, who do I think I am? I can't go to, to an art school. That's, I don't have the resources for that. How did you pay for college? Um, I took out loans, and I worked. Um, I was, like, an orientation leader. Um, so for a summer, I got to stay on campus. So I worked that way. I worked in the school, <laughs> in the cafeteria. I worked in, like, retail stores in, in downtown Boston. I, you know, I tried babysitting, but no one really trusted me with their children. That was a short career. And, um, and cafes or whatever I can get my hands on, I would work. You said one of your jobs was working in the cafeteria? Oh, I hated that. Because you were, like, visibly working for yeah. money yeah. that other students didn't have to work for. Yeah, I hated that, being up there. And it was, like, front and center, and I would, like, take people's cards and swipe it and had to wear a hairnet. Hard work doesn't embarrass me. It's just I, th- at that point, um, I just wanted to fit in. I wanted to be one of the girls. I didn't want to be working while my girlfriends ate dinner. And did you tell, when you went to college, did you tell people about your family? No, no. I didn't tell people about my family. But, like, sometimes it would just boil up. And, like, I remember the first time I told my roommate, I think, um, not not even my first year, like, later, later on when I, I think I was, like, you know, acting out and, and being crazy and being, and I was upset and crying and and just didn't know, you know, feeling lonely. And she didn't understand why that was, I was going through that. And then finally, you know, I, I needed a confidant and I, and I told her. Did you ever run out of money? Oh, yeah, all the time. I didn't know how to, how to handle money, which is primarily the, maybe why I, I got in so much trouble um, financially. What kind of trouble? Well, just, you know, I couldn't pay for things, you know, maxed out my credit card, you know, um, took out loans I wasn't supposed to take out with, you know, crazy interest rates um, that came back and, like, bit me in the ass. I was being called into financial aid office, like, constantly. I mean, I had to skip so many classes because I just didn't have the money to pay for it. I couldn't ask for any more help from the families that had taken me in. I, I so desperately wanted to do it all myself and not let anyone in that I was struggling you know, and I try to fix it, but I would try to, like how my mother says, um, tapar el sol con un dedo. You know, try to cover the sun with a finger. I don't know if that translates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Did you tell your parents? No. No. Mm-mm. Um, they would ask me about it, and I'd just be like, you know, I don't want to talk about it. Um, but no, I, I never told them that I was doing that bad. Things got worse during Diane's junior year. She got really depressed. 
and says she started cutting herself. Eventually, it felt like almost a drug, you know, almost kind of a release thing, you know, of being in control. Um, it was a way of dealing. It was just like it was a moment where you felt like you were about to implode and you were feeling like you wanted to die. And you were feeling like you didn't want to be around anymore and you could not possibly feel this pain anymore. And then it felt good to release. Um, and that's kind of how what it felt like. Where would you cut yourself? My arms, my legs. Um, you know, whenever I felt like I couldn't handle it, you know, that that was there. Diane also started drinking more regularly. I was feeling like a grown-up. You know, I was feeling like, oh, this is like, yes, a dirty martini, please. You know, and I was just like drinking like on a regular basis. And I, then that started and then I used that as a coping me- mechanism or or in a way to self-sabotage myself. You know, if I had some a big test or something the next day and I didn't feel like I was going to do well or I was scared of it, I would I, I would just drink and then like be so hungover or like um, that I would just sabotage my my opportunity, you know, and and I would just that would be another reason to be upset with myself and hate myself and you know, another way to to prove that I was a loser and that I didn't deserve anything. Would you drink alone? No, I mean sometimes, but I don't think it was, you know, it, it was an addiction in 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 the way that like you normally think of it. I was just going out and being a party girl, you know. Um and that was hurting me a lot. And I think that later on, you know, in, in like my last year of college, I got like um, a waitressing gig. You know, I was like, working at the club, at duh clubs. You know, it's, 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 oh, this is so cool, <laughs> you know? And I was, that was my way to like cope with it, with cope with my, with my feelings and everything that was going wrong in my life was just to party. After college, Diane kept working in clubs. She also got a job at a law firm and picked up other work to help make ends meet. I needed money quick. I needed to pay off these loans because they were hounding me. I mean, I would get calls every day. I remember, like, on Sundays, I'd go out in the streets and, like, give out hot tamale candy to people and, you know, do cartwheels and stuff. Be like, hot tamales! You know, and then I'd go to my night job and be like, hot vodka sodas for everyone. You know, I had lots of different jobs. Oh, and then, you know, in the morning, I'd be like, hi, welcome to Altman Altman. You know what I mean? So I had a lot of a lot of different hats on, but all the while, you know, kind of denying this one thing that I wanted to do, which was be an actor. By the time she was 24, Diane was exhausted from all of the hustling. She'd started seeing a therapist and decided to sign up for an acting class. That's when I felt like I started, you know, feeling myself again when I was in those classes and playing and, you know, yelling to the top of my lungs. And it wasn't me by myself in in a room with a bottle of wine. It was me amongst other people who were screaming too and wanting to release all that energy as well. And it felt really good. And I felt like a kid again. I felt like I was back in BAA, my performance arts high school. And I felt like I had possibilities again. Tell me about deciding to try to make a living as a performer (laughs) when you've been telling yourself since you were 14 that you have to support yourself on your own. Well, I think I reached a place of giving no fucks. It was just that moment (laughs) where I was just like, okay, 
so I've done all these things. I've tried to live by the book. I've really tried to be conservative and, you know, try all these different ways that I could potentially be successful and have money and, you know, build a family and a life for myself. I've tried it all. Guess what? It's not working for me. So let's try something else because I – if I, it's either that. It's either try something that brought so much happiness to my life before and um, – and I felt like was missing in my life, or die. Diane moved to New York in 2011. And a year and a half later, she auditioned for Orange is the New Black. She's been a regular since the show premiered. When did you, when did you learn about money? <laughs> I still am pretty bad. When did I learn about money? Um, I think when I started working on Orange and I actually started getting like a real paycheck and I wasn't getting paid like tips. Are you still paying <laughs> off debt? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But it's good. You know, Sally, I got you. I got you, Sally Mae and Fannie Mae. Those are my homegirls. They hate me, but we're good. (laughs) It's mostly student loans? (laughs) Yeah, it's mostly student loans. Thank God. Yeah, it's only student loans. I don't have any credit card uh, debt or anything like that. Um, It's just I'm paying off my student loans, and it's fine. I mean, eventually I was able to defer them and handle things and, and, you know, handle my monies right. And, yeah, and I don't have that many, you know, big expenses either. You know, if I pay my rent on time, I don't have a car. Oh, and then the health insurance. That was that was wonderful once I finally had health insurance. You know, and then everything's all gravy after that. So you send money do you send money to your parents? Yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. I when I wanted to contribute and now and now I do and it makes me feel um happy that um that they're not struggling as much and um that's something that I always wanted to do and will continue to do. And, you know, it's not anything crazy. It's just it's just um, enough to, to make me feel comfortable and make me sleep at night. Diane's parents split up soon after they were deported. She stays in touch with them on the phone and through occasional visits. But their relationship hasn't always been easy. I was angry at them for a long time. Um, I knew that they tried and I knew that that they did their best, but I was, yeah, I was angry at them, and that that showed in different ways, me not talking to them, me, you know, being nasty and acting out in in different ways. Um, Obviously, you know, that took a toll on me, and obviously it took a toll on them. I mean, they were heartbroken, Um, but they understood. I mean, my parents are the most patient people that I know, so they just kind of waited and waited until I would, you know, wake up one day and say, well, okay, let me understand really what's going on here. So, I mean, every year it gets better. And I let it go a little more, and I, I understand where they were coming from. Do you think your parents would have stayed together if it were not for their deportation and dealing with the U.S. immigration system? I don't—yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, that made me really sad. Sometimes, you know, they would fight and would be upset about their current situation and um and I would think that they were gonna that they were gonna separate, but it just wasn't something that was on my mind, you know. So when that did happen, it really upset me and it's weird because it was like I went from seeing them very together and working things out and and being happy together, um, to going to Colombia and seeing them not talk to each other. So that was really, really shocking and it was very jarring for me and so it definitely affected my relationships after that, too, you know, and how I dealt with people and how I what I considered to be love or forever. Um, Until when? 
Um, until I realized I was being really a, a crazy-ass person, you know, and I was just, you know, sabotaging relationships or, or letting, letting all, all that pain affect my, my relationships. Um, Are you currently in a relationship? Mm-hmm, I am, yeah. You're working through that in your relationship now? We're working through that. Yes, when we land in relationships, not all is resolved. No, no, yeah. you still have, there's every, every day you have to work on it. Diane Guerrero. She's written a book about her family. It's called In the Country We Love. It comes out in May. And you can see her in the next season of Orange is the New Black this June. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios. The team includes Katie Bishop, Chester Jesus Soria, Emily Botine, Hannah McCarthy, and Andrew Dunn. Special thanks to Stephanie Joyce for her help on this episode. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death, Sex, Money. And if you're new to our show, welcome. We're really glad you found us. You can find all of our episodes on our website at deathsexmoney.org. And sign up for our weekly newsletter there, too. Today, both of Diane's parents live in Colombia. They haven't been allowed to visit the U.S. since they were deported in 2001. I still hold on to that hope that I'm, I will one day um, wake up and my kid's going to run into the bedroom and say, I want to go see Grandma, and it, it's not going to have to be a five- or six-hour flight. Um, and I still have hold on to hope of you know going to Home Goods with my mom one day and picking out a freaking lamp. <laughs> I do. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC.